right, let's take our Bible tonight. We're going to be in um, Psalm 85. Psalm 85. And uh, I'm going to read verse 1 through 6, and uh, there's one particular verse here that we'll kind of focus in on, but it, it plays into, obviously, the whole context of this passage as we look at uh, what is revival. What is revival? Now, revival is the subject on many minds at this present hour with everything that's going on at Asbury University, and, and um, that's, that's what's caught our attention, uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, and... Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that, but let's read the text, and then we'll get into some, some points, I think, that would help us tonight. Psalm 85, verse 1 through 6, we'll just use this to open us tonight. He says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins, Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? So, revival's on our minds. Uh, We think about what's going on at Asbury College, and uh, many call it a revival. We've seen that uh, it started out as you know, a typical Wednesday chapel service, and students had decided to continue worshiping when it was over, and then uh, I think someone had emailed out to the rest of the students, hey, if you want to go join them in worship, uh, go join them, and so it kind of grew from there, right? And so it's just kept on going ever since that, that time. But we need to ask ourselves, is this a true revival? Is it a biblical revival? Well, for us who are far from that event and have had no firsthand experience, I don't believe it to be wise for us to speak too dogmatically about what is going on if you're not connected immediately to what's going on up in that area of the, of the world. However, I think there are certain conclusions that we can reach from hearing the firsthand experiences of others of what exactly is happening in these services and what has happened ever since they started. So the main thing I want to bring our attention to, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, Uh, is the importance of God's people to be discerning when it comes to major movements uh, in Christ's name. We need to have discernment when it comes to these sorts of things and not just jump hook, line, and sinker, oh, this must be a revival. What does the Bible really say about revival? Uh, How can we be discerning about revival if we don't know what the Bible says about it? And that really is the ultimate question for anything that we believe or want to assess. What's the Bible say about it? Does the Bible speak to this particular subject. Well, I believe that the Bible does speak to the nature of revival. I believe revival is a real thing that God's people should pray for and God's people may experience and they have experienced throughout church history. I think there'll be revival in the future. But like any truth we see from Scripture, there's also going to be false forms of what is true. And so that's why we have to be cautious about uh, what we just digest and take in and not buy into something hook, line, and sinker. So our opening text here is one of the most prominent texts here that is used in talking about revival. When you hear about having a revival, this is always the verse that's quoted, Psalm 85 and verse 6. The psalmist says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Well, we need to, we're going to look at the overall context of this verse in its passage because you can't just pluck it out of its context. You need to understand what's going on what the psalmist is saying and what he's, what he's actually writing about. 
But primarily through this, I want us to get a basic overview of revival from the Bible that may help us in our discernment of any other revival that may be professed or experienced today. Um, now, I believe this, that there's a, lot of, there's, there's a lot of talk about revival, even before this Asbury thing happened, and I think there's a reason for that, because there's a great need for revival. I think that's an, an obvious thing, right? It, it's, there's a need for revival in the Lord's local churches, especially in our nation. It, it seems that our nation is in an uncontrolled spiral in depravity, and, and if there's ever going to be any kind of change, it's, it's going to have to come from revival, and where does revival happen? Got the people of God, right? Through the churches, through His Word. Uh, so when we think about revival, there's a lot of people that have unbiblical ideas about it. False expectations about it. What is it? Is it just having a big meeting? Is revival happening if, you know, people jump up and start hollering and running around the building? Does that mean revivals broke out? What is it really that, that is biblically discerning of revival? So let's consider just a few points here tonight. Number one is this. I want to point out the, an explanation of biblical revival. And I've got three, three under, under points here, sub points for this, all right? And let me, let me get just a little technical for you with you just for a moment. Uh, let's look at the words that are used for revival in the Bible. Now, you would have had all this in your notes, and it would have been a lot easier, so you're just going to have to pay attention and be, uh, be, be on guard of what I'm saying for a moment, be attentive to what I'm saying. Uh, but the words used for revival, because words and what they mean are vital to understanding truth. I don't give you Greek and Hebrew definitions to try to sound smart or anything. Um, that's just the nature of what God's Word is. You have different words that mean different things, and uh, translation communicates what those words mean, and sometimes other translations give insight to that word, and uh, so do Greek definitions and Hebrew definitions. But when it comes to the word revive, what's it mean? Well, right here in our text, we have this word revive. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Well, the Hebrew words here for revive us again, that's two Hebrew verbs. There's two Hebrew verbs here in that one phrase. The first verb applies to the word again, because in Hebrew you read right to left and not right to left to right, but that's the first one that comes in this phrase. It means to turn around. It means to repent, to bring back, to refresh. So it's, it's, it's returning. It's the, the very same Hebrew word is translated in verse 3 as you turn. And it's also the same word in verse 4, it's translated as restore us again. Uh, and so you see this underlying theme in this passage. And it carries the idea of moving back to a point of where you've departed from, all right? So that's the fundamental thing with that word, moving back to where you've departed from, returning. But then this second verb here in the, applies to the word, re, word, the word revive, it simply means a return to life to bring back to life. Now, for example, we think of someone who's maybe unconscious and on the brink of death. What does an EMT typically do in that situation? They shock them and they, they, they do chest compressions, they do CPR, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to what? Revive them, right? Get them back. Uh, get their heart back to beating in rhythm and get them conscious again. Uh, they're trying to revive them. And so that's the basic concept with this. Overall, what the psalmist is asking with this prayer to God is to revive them. He's asking God to bring them back to life that they had departed from. In this case, Israel needed to be brought back to the spiritual state of what is normal and expected for God's people. Because that's the point of revival. 
God's people do what? We stray. We get carnal. We get worldly. And revival is about God bringing us back to where we ought to be because when we're where we ought to be as Christians, then he does his best work. That's when he uses us to the fullest. Now you come to the New Testament. You don't really have a word for revive very often. There's two Greek words used primarily, and they're not always translated as revive or revive. Sometimes they're translated as alive again. Uh, But the first one we can see in Philippians 4.10. Paul writes to the Philippians, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were intended, you, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The word revived here means to be in a state identical with a previous state. In other words, their care and concern had wavered and then it brought back to where it ought to be towards Paul. Uh, so it's brought back to the, where it should be. That's the principle here. There's another Greek word used by Jesus himself. You remember the parable or the story of the prodigal son? In Luke 15, 24, it's a very prominent passage, well known to us. The father says, this my son was dead and is alive again, alive again. And he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So uh, he's alive again. That's the same concept of being brought back to life. He's speaking in a figurative sense of that his son is revived to where he's supposed to be. Remember what the son did? He said, give me all my inheritance. He went off astray and did all his thing, got, him, got into the world, and he, he came back to the father. So that's what that revive means. We come to our English word. It conveys the same basic message, revive. Webster's Dictionary says to return to consciousness or life, to become active or flourishing again. I give you these definitions just to lay the foundation. When we talk about revival, what are we talking about? In its most simplest terms, it is to be brought back to a state of normalcy, brought back to a place where you ought to be, back where you ought to be. So within Christianity, we think of revival in the church. It's about Christians being brought back where they need to be and are supposed to be spiritually, where they are supposed to be spiritually, and that is where a normal Christian is to be. So we see this concept of revival used in a few different ways in Scripture, and I'm going to turn to a few with you. But let's think of the ways revival is used for a moment. We see the definition being brought back to a normal state, where you ought to be, all right? That's the basic definition. But let's look at revival and how this word is used throughout Scripture, just to give you illustration, okay? This is more for illustration's sake. If you look at Genesis chapter 37, or excuse me, 45, go there with me. Genesis chapter 45, we see a revival in an individual to a proper emotional and mental state, something he had been lacking for many years. This particular individual is named Jacob. Can you think of anything in Jacob's life that have made him distraught for many years and just really threw him into a tailspin? Joseph, right? The news that Joseph is dead, his beloved favorite son, the one who he made a coat of many colors for. If we read Genesis 37, this is just me quoting, we'll go to 3045 in a minute. When he got that news, Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, or the grave, to my son mourning. This his fa- thus his father wept for him. So, so Joseph says, I, I'm going to go to my death mourning for Joseph. 
He's never been the same ever since he found out Joseph was supposedly dead. But you come down years later when his brothers returned from Egypt having met Joseph, that he's alive. In Genesis 45, verse 25 through 28, what happens? They went up out from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb and he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent, sent to carry, Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob did what? Revive. So, so his mental and emotional state was revived, was brought back to where it needed to be by this news. So, so that, that's one illustration of being brought back to where you ought to be. We see physical revival in a man named Samson. Judges chapter 15. Let's go there for a moment. Judges 15. Verse 18 and 19. Now, I love some of the accounts with Samson. And one of my favorites is probably this account where he took the jawbone of a donkey and he slew a thousand people. Now, no matter how strong a man is, you're going to be pretty wore out after that, right? I think I'd be wore out swinging around a jawbone not killing any people. That'd wear me down. But Samson, we know, was unique in strength. His long hair, his gift from God, he's wore down. He's on the brink of of fainting. He's very thirsty. And what we find in verse 18 through 19, he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So Samson at this moment is weak. He's not in a state of normal strength, is he? Then we come to verse 19. God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and the water came out from it, And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he what? Revived, right? There's that word. He revived. So uh, God provided what he needed. He drank it, and Samson's back to normal. He's got his strength back. He's back to where he needs to be. We see another example in the Old Testament. I won't have you turn there, but 1 Kings 17, 21 through 22, if you want to jot it down, there's a resurrection form of revival in the widow's son that died in the days of Elijah. Remember what happens here. He stretched himself, the Bible says of Elijah, he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he, there's that word, revived. So he was dead, now he's back to life, he's back to normal, back to where he needed to be. God heard the prayer of Elijah, granted it, the child was revived or restored back to normal life. Now, that brings us back to our opening text for a moment. Back to our opening text in Psalm 85, 6. What kind of a revival do we see in Psalm 85? Primarily, it is a spiritual revival. Spiritual revival. And spiritual revival is what we think of when we talk about revival. When I talk about, man, we need revival, I don't mean that I'm thirsty and I need my strength. I'm talking about the church needs revival spiritually. It needs to be brought to a place where it is being fervent and effectual in in living the Christian life and being who they're supposed to be. But Psalm 85, 6, what is the aim of his prayer when he says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Well, let's look at some context here. In this psalm, Israel has given the Lord praise. He's giving praise on behalf of Israel for the Lord's actions in restoring them from their sinfulness and their captivity. That's what we read in verse 1 through 4. God's forgiven them of their sinfulness. 
He's bringing back their fortunes. He's bringing them back to their land. Now, looking at it historically, Israel, we know, was taken captive by an enemy. Many scholars place this psalm near the early return of Israel, coming back into the land from their Babylonian captivity. Now, you remember what happened with Israel in that era of time? Days of Jeremiah, they were entrenched in idolatry, right? God brought judgment on them. Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The people, many of them killed. Thousands of them carried off uh, into a foreign land. Israel's not in a place where they ought to be, is it? That's not the normal state of God's people. But God promised in Jeremiah 29.10 that he'd bring them back. That's what he's done. He says to the Lord, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. God's kept his promise. Why then is the psalmist praying, revive us again, if they're already freed and forgiven? Well, I think it's clear from the whole of this passage that the psalmist is praying for a full restoration of the nation. For the nation has been enduring a prolonged period of pain and wrath, uh, pain under God's wrath. He wants their spiritual state to be as it should be according to the law of God. They had broken the covenant of God. His desire is for God's people to be back in the land under that covenant, abiding and flourishing as they ought to be according to God's word. They are supposed to be obeying the law of God, and and, and the result of God reviving them would be what? Joy. Joy would be a result of that. Knowing his covenant love with them as a result of that. Hearing God's word to his people as a result of this revival. Read through the rest of this chapter. So this is the revival they longed for. It is firstly spiritual in nature, and it has prolonged effects on the whole of God's people and their land in the context of Israel. Now, when we come to think about revival today, what we need is spiritual revival upon God's people, upon local churches. It is spiritual in nature. Letter C, under this first heading. I want you to understand this, though. The work of revival is God's. Because this this is one of the things that many misunderstand about revival, that we can just plan or fabricate a revival. You can't do that. Revival is the work of God. Now, I understand when, when, when a church may plan to have revival services. I've done that, and I understand what we're doing. We're trying to gather we're trying to do what we're supposed to do and meet and and be in the word and prayer and worship and and pray that God would work and move in our hearts and in the church and and we we ought to do sorts of those sorts of things but when it comes down to it as far as revival itself we can't plan it we say okay God's going to send revival on this date it's not something we can do it's according to his power and his plan and his providence now we need to understand that it's the work of the Holy Spirit not man now what does the psalmist say here He does not say, will you help us revive ourselves? He says, will you revive us? Will you revive us? Because only God could truly restore Israel to what they needed to be. It had to be by the power of God. And the plea of the psalmist is for God to do the reviving, for his spirit to restore them to a state of spiritual flourishing in their land as it was at former times in the past. The prophet Habakkuk spoke in a similar fashion. Habakkuk 3, 2 is another verse to maybe jot down. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. 
In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember verses and remember mercy. So Habakkuk desired the Lord to revive what? Your work. Not my work, but his work. He's asking the Lord to revive his work. And so the mighty working by which God delivered his people and set them apart unto himself to bring him glory, that's what he's asking. Revive us in this fashion. John Calvin rightly comments on this particular text. He says, by the work of God, he means the condition of his people or the church. For though God is the creator of heaven and earth, he would yet have his own church to be acknowledged to be, as it were, his peculiar workmanship and a special monument of his power, wisdom, justice, and goodness. How wonderful is it when God's people are genuinely and truly revived? When they love God above everything else. They love Jesus above everything else. They're, they're faithfully following him in, in fellowship and worship and evangelism and making disciples and being who they are to be. So we've got to understand that, that revival is the work of God. Only God can revive hearts and lives and churches. But I think in a, in a, in a um, connection to this, we also understand this, that only God can regenerate hearts. <laughs> only God can regenerate hearts. Because regeneration does tie into revival to some degree. Now, I think there should be some clarification here. Sometimes it's thought that revival is about getting sinners saved. Well, while it is always a joyful thing to see sinners saved, revival is chiefly about the sanctification of God's people, just like worship is. We, we gather for worship not for the sake of sinners, but for the glory of Christ. So you have to have your, your ducks in a row with this. But understand this. The regeneration of lost sinners is the byproduct of genuine revival. So, so, so they are connected. As the gospel is preached and the saints are gathered, sinners are brought to faith. The gospel is the foundation of all true revival. And if true revival is happening among God's people, God is using that same gospel to raise the dead, to regenerate the hearts of sinners. There have been many great revivals in history, times when God worked in mighty ways, one of them being the, the first great awakening. And during that time of revival, there was heavy emphasis on two things in preaching. One was justification by faith and regeneration by God. Those two things to the church. You understand that preaching the gospel is not just for the sinners. The gospel itself revives the church, those who already know the gospel. Friend, we ought never to get tired of the gospel. You're, you're going to hear it to the day you die. That's, the gospel is, is for the church, and, uh, and it's through the church, and it's what saves sinners, but it also purifies the church. But the message of justification by faith was central uh, during the first great awakening. Romans 5.8 tells us, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what man needs. He needs justification, and it's only by faith alone. But he also needs regeneration. This is a message that needs to be preached today because in our day, what's, what passes for evangelism is nothing, nothing more than some shallow, easy believism. A lot of manipulation to, to get professions and decisions out of people. 
You understand, a sinner must be born again. Titus 3, 5, Paul writes, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You understand that to be regenerated is to be born again. It is to experience a complete change of life, inside and out. It's to be born literally from above. The word again, when Jesus says you must be born again, the word again literally means from above. Not from inside, not from you, not from the preacher, but from above. That's Holy Spirit sent. And so everyone who has been born again, understand, is, is, is come to know Christ, and their belief testifies of that. So we see that this, this is the Spirit's work, it's not man's. Revival, regeneration, it's the Spirit's work, it's not man's. And this is all foundational to how God works. So when we think about the explanation of revival, this is mainly to lay the foundation of what it is. Revival is being brought back to a place that you ought to be. Brought back to a place where you ought to be. Christian spiritually, and for the sinner, they need to be brought to life. So both of those are the works of God. But number two tonight, I want us to consider expectations from biblical revival. Expectations for biblical revival. And I want to first note some evidences of revival. If there is a meeting happening, and some call it a revival, what should be happening in that meeting? If it really is a revival, what should be taking place in that meeting? Now, there are a lot of different aspects that happen in spiritual meetings in the name of Christ that do not necessitate revival. If revival is God working in His people to make them what they ought to be, then surely we can find some Scripture evidence of what that might look like and how the Spirit of God moves. Well, I'm going to piggyback off of one of the greatest theologians of our nation's history, and a man well-versed in revival. His name's Jonathan Edwards. God used him, among others, like George Whitfield, during the First Great Awakening from 1735 to 1743. And Edwards wrote a lot on the subject of revival, and he wrote a, uh, a few books, one of which I'll reference is the... Um, Five marks, mark, marks of the moving of the Spirit. What is it? If the Spirit is moving, what's, what's happening? What's happening in people? And he takes these, not from his own mind, but from 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. So let, let's look at a few of these. There's five marks here that he gives. Five marks of the Spirit moving in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. No, excuse me. 1 John 4. 1 John 4. The first one he states is this, and I'm going to quote him. Now, understand, if you read Jonathan Edwards, if you've ever read him, he's very technical and somewhat hard to follow. I read all the time, and I've got to read him like four times to understand what he's saying. It's old English, and it's somewhat hard to digest, so I'm going to, try to, I'm going to quote him but summarize what he's saying for you. He firstly states that when the work is such as to raise the esteem of professed converts for Jesus and seems to establish their minds in the truth of the gospel testimony to him as the Son of God and the Savior of men. So in shorter terms, he's saying when the Spirit is truly moving, he raises the affections of people to see Christ exalted for who he truly is in the gospel and in his person. That's what the Spirit does. He exalts Christ. 1 John 4, 2-3. through 3. Here's just an example. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. 
So, so what does the Holy Spirit do? He influences, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and he exalts him. Now, to add some reference to that, Jesus said himself of the work of the Spirit in John 16, 14, he will glorify me, not himself. The Spirit does not seek to bring attention to himself, although we see him working and we give credit where credit is due. We know that the Spirit's working, but his mission is to glorify who? Christ. He exalts Christ, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that's the moving and working of the Spirit of God. He exalts Christ for who he truly is in the gospel and in his eternal person. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who prompts people to recognize the lordship of Christ. That's his word. That's his first point that Jonathan Edwards brings out of 1 John. He also notes, secondly, when the Spirit is moving, he says, when the Spirit that is at work operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and established sin. In other words, this means when the Spirit is truly working in people, there is true conviction over sin. There is true conviction over sin and worldliness. He is working to bring about victory in the hearts of his people and the lives of his people over the world and over the darkness around them. The Spirit works in that way. Look at verse 4 and verse 5 of 1 John 4. He says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. You notice that he's making a distinguishing mark between the people of God and the people of this world. The people of God have overcome this world. They are overcomers. And the people of God have who in them that's greater than he that's in the world? The Spirit of God. I'm thankful for that. Greater is he that's in you than he who is in the world. And so understand that the, the, the Spirit of God, when he's working about victory, making his people overcomers in their practical life, you understand that he is bringing about conviction over sin and true repentance. And I believe this. Without repentance, there is no revival. There's just not. You say you've had revival, but you live on in your sinful life, and there's no change. That's not revival. And so if there is no conviction over sin, we can't claim revival. It is dependent on repentance because that's what the Spirit works in his people. There's other scriptures we could reference, but I'm just following Jonathan Edwards' line of thought here in 1 John 4. Thirdly, Edwards notes, when the Spirit operates to bring about a greater regard to the scriptures and establishes them more in their truth and divine origin. So what he's saying there is that revival brings about our reverence for the Scriptures, that this is the Word of God. It's not just another book. It it is the Word of God, and it's the authority over our life. See, that's what revival does. It revives us to seeing and holding the Word of God for what it is. And I believe that's one of the detriments of the church today. Christians do not cherish and hold the Word of God as their authority. They will say they do. But they never read it. They don't live it. And that is evidence that they need revival because they do not view the Scriptures as they ought to be viewing them. 1 John 4, 6, he says this. 
We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, notice what he's saying there. We are of God, and whoever knows God listens to us. By listening to us, John's talking about his apostolic authority of being a messenger of God's word, but also in what he would pen. He's, they, they listen to the word of God. They're taking it in. It's important to them. That's a fruit or a evidence of the moving of the Spirit. Fourthly, Edwards states that when the Spirit operates as Spirit of truth, leading persons to the truth and convincing them of those things that are true. So, in other words, he's saying that the Spirit, with regard to the Scriptures, he's effectually working sound doctrine in what is being said and taught. Sound doctrine, I believe, is important when it comes to revival as well. We know truth over error. We grow in our ability to distinguish truth over error. And that's what the latter part of this verse says. He says in verse 6, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Friend, just as there's a spirit of truth, there's also a spirit of error. And there's a lot of error in our day that passes for truth. And if you're not careful, you can be duped into believing what is, believing in, uh, in error what is actually true. You know, you know Jesus told the, um, the religious Pharisees, John 8, 44, remember what he said to them? He said, said to them, you're of your father the devil. Your will is to do the father, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If anyone thought they had the truth, the Pharisees did. They did. But Jesus says, you, you follow your father the devil, and he's a liar. All he does is lie. You see, 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 God may revive in spite of some error because you understand none of us are perfect in our interpretation of all things. But truth is the foundation of true revival. Truth matters when it comes to revival. And Edwards notes that, that, that sound doctrine is, is a fruit and evidence of revival. But fifthly and lastly in regards to his evidences, he says that when the spirit operates as a spirit of love to God and man. So what he's saying is that when the spirit is moving in revival... He stirs the person to love God and love his neighbor. Because that, friend, is the two greatest commandments of the Christian life. A man came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? What did he tell him? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second is likened to it, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what's the next thing John talks about in this chapter? Love. Verse 7, down through verse You go on through the rest of the chapter almost, but I'll just go down through verse 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You understand that loving God means loving the true God, not just a few characteristics of God that you love. Loving all of God. God is God of love, but he's also a God of holiness, a God of judgment. You love the whole person of who God is, every character trait. But it also brings about love for neighbor, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. So see, these are some basic evidences of moving of the Spirit in God's people. And revival is always the moving of the Holy Spirit among God's people. 
And there's many that, that claim some wild things today about the movement of the Spirit that's just not movement of the Spirit. We've got to be discerning with this. We must see biblically how the Spirit works in people, for that is the evidence and test of true revival. Letter B, though, under this heading, I want us to consider not only the evidences, but the effects of revival. If, if revival is truly taking place, will there be effects from that? Will there be effects of that? Should we, what should we expect going forward from a true revival in the lives of, of God's people in the church? Because I believe this, that revival goes beyond the meeting place to your own place. Revival is not about just, you know, we've come and we've had a great meeting in this one place. True revival spreads, extends outward, extends outward, okay, to other places and other people, starting with your own life, your home, your family, your job, your community. That's how revival works. Now, to consider this, another great author is Ian Murray. Ian Murray's written great content on the subject of revival in a couple different books and and one of them is called Pentecost Today. And he lists out six things that revival will bring based on Scripture, but also on evaluation of church history. Let me share with, you, share with you these things briefly. Number one is this, is that revival restores faith in the Scriptures. Revival restores faith in the Scriptures. Now, he comments in his book, the most widespread revivals, in the last four centuries have followed eras when unbelief was dominant both in society and in the church. Now, we could think back to different eras when we see darkness, when we see uh, a lack of trust in the Word of God. Think, for example, uh, the Reformation. That was a revival of sorts. What happened during that era of time? God the Spirit was working in the hearts of men, bringing them back to what as their central foundation? Scripture alone, sola scriptura. We preached on that, right? One of the five solas, one of the pillars of a biblical church, the authority of Scripture for all of faith and practice. This was needed in that dark time of unbelief and idolatry. They were entrenched in a false church. You couldn't even call it a true church, right? The Catholicism is not a true church. It's a false, dark, uh, uh, it's paganism with Christian names is what I would describe it as. It's not true Christianity. But they were entrenched in that. But, but beyond that, 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 that's a very stark uh, uh, example. What about today? I mean, it's unmistakable that society now doubts the Scriptures, right? We know that. But does the church doubt the Scriptures? Many in the church do. Many in the church do. You see, see there's always an, an assault upon the authority of the Word of God and that is very prevalent in our own day. And if God's professing people do not trust the Scriptures for what they are, neither will society have proper respect for the Scriptures either. Revival brings restoration of faith in the Scriptures, both in the church, but it also outwardly affects community to some extent. Secondly, revival restores the true meaning of being a Christian. I think this ties into all that I was saying earlier. Revival restores true meaning to be a Christian. That's what revival does. It brings a person back to what a Christian is supposed to be and do according to the Scriptures. Look with me, if you would, to 1 Peter for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, we, we could go to a multitude of different passages that reveal true Christianity and who we were, where we've been brought to, and what we're to do. But look, look for a moment at this one. 
I love this passage. 1 Peter 2, verse 7 through 10. Or excuse me, verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me, 9 through 10. Notice what he tells these Christians. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You notice what Peter establishes here? He establishes who the Christian is. They are a chosen people. They are called out of darkness into the light. They're a priesthood, a holy people. But notice what they are to do as God's holy people. God has called us to this position for what purpose in verse 9? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into light. This is to be the norm of Christian living. And a revived Christian, one who is living as they ought to live, is doing this. Being a beacon of God's glory in Christ and what he's called them to be and do. Now, understand that this is dependent on the Spirit's work in us, but there's also an application which we submit and yield and apply the Word of God to our life. We're responsible to live Christ-like, and yet we're dependent on the Spirit to do that. Revival brings about a true meaning of what it is to be Christian. Thirdly, he says revival advances the gospel with amazing swiftness. With amazing swiftness. When you see God working in his people and in a mighty way of this nature, the gospel message goes forth. And with the gospel message, conversion comes and disciples are made. This is the power of the Spirit at work. Do we not see that in the early church? The Spirit's poured out on Pentecost, empowers the church, and what happens? Peter preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people believe and are baptized. A little later on, you see 5,000. What what, what's happening in Jerusalem with that first church, with the outpouring of the Spirit? The gospel is advancing with power and swiftness. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a certain number of conversions that must be met for revival to have taken place. But it does mean that when the Spirit moves mightily, a revival of the gospel goes forth with power. Acts demonstrates that. But you look at church history as well. Murray writes in regard to the First Great Awakening. He says, at a time when the population of the New England colonies was around 340,000, it's estimated that from 25,000 to 50,000 were added to her churches in the early 1740s and perhaps 300,000 in all of the 13 colonies. During that era in which God was working in a mighty way through his churches, many thousands of people coming to Christ and being added to the churches. Revival always advances the gospel. Revival has a moral impact on communities. Number four, now that certainly depends, I think, on how widespread revival reaches, but revival does affect the community. Say, how so? Well, friend, when believers are full of life in Christ and they're living as they ought to live, they are a beacon of Christ in the community. That's just what it boils down to. Another one, number five, revival changes the understanding of Christian ministry. You see, with a revived understanding of the Christian life, the gospel and the church, there's also a revived view of the ministry and those God's called to serve in that ministry. 
Both the church and ministers should, be, uh, should view the ministry biblically. And often the ministry is viewed unbiblically today. Do we see that at all? The advancement of women pastors being ordained? Homosexual pastors? I mean, is there not a need for revival in this area as well? Even pastors themselves viewing the ministry as if it's some kind of a game? Get a higher degree and outdo another guy? Rather than it's a, a holy task of shepherding the people of God, revival will revive the uh, understanding of the ministry. But also in regards to the local church, revival changes. Sixthly, what he mentions, revival changes public worship in the churches. Now, what could possibly need changes change in our public worship? It's not so much about the changes what we're doing, but so much as our heart in doing them. You understand that many churches today go through the motions of doing all the things that the Bible prescribes for worship, but they're dead because their heart is not engaged in awe of Christ anymore. Their first love, they've left. They gather without a sense of the worth of Christ and the precious duty of what worship is. It's often very mechanical and joyless and cold and stale as if, oh, let's just go do this church thing again. There's not a sense of who Christ is in the church. And what, what, what did the psalmist say would be the result of revival in Psalm 85, 6? Revive us again that your people may what? Rejoice in you. There is a lack of joy in the church. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, you may have all the truth, but if you're not worshiping in spirit, you're dead as a hammer. You need both. You may think you're worshiping spirit, but if you're not doing it in truth, that's a problem too. True revival affects the local church because it's the local church that God's ordained in which we primarily worship him. Now, I know there's all kinds of other aspects that we could probably consider, but I wanted you to see some of these expectations from revival, the evidences of it that Jonathan Edwards gives us from 1 John 4, how the Spirit moves and works in his people, but then also the effects of it that Scripture gives and church history gives, I think are important too. Number three, and lastly, I'm going to try to come through this quickly, but I wanted to cover this. It's probably a good thing you didn't get handouts because you might have left. You might have left once you saw them. Examination for a biblical revival, because this, this is where I wanted to bring it to really our own perception of discernment today. Letter A, we should have caution towards hyped-up revivals. We must have caution towards them. Now, when you consider the biblical points that we've looked at, what revival actually is, what produces revival, what revival does... This means that not every spiritual meeting or movement in the name of Christ is truly a revival. That it is the working of the Spirit. 1 John 4, 1, back to 1 John 4 again. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. What's he say? Test the spirits. Test the spirits. Why? To see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I have seen many regarding the Asbury revival get really boisterous and heated if you have any kind of caution or question about it. Understand, church, it is biblical to question the legitimacy of a revival, just as we see here. Now, there are certain things that happen at a spiritual meeting that may or may not mean revival is happening. They're not concrete, and therefore we should be cautious. 
Now, again, Jonathan Edwards, in his works, in the same book, he gives negative signs that could be a result of revival, but also could not be a result of revival. In other words, these things, they don't make or break whether revival is true or not. We have to understand biblically how the Spirit works, but at the same time, there's some of these outward things could be the work of the Spirit as a byproduct of revival, could not be. So let me briefly give these to you, okay? Number one is this, that the work is carried out or carried on in an unusual or extraordinary way. In other words, you understand that God may work outside of the typical pattern of, say, our local church. Not every church is bound to do their service in a specific way. Now, there are specific practices we have to keep. We preach the word of God. We sing praise to him. We give. We pray. We do all the things that, is, that God commands to worship. We understand revival is not limited to a meeting being identical to any particular church. So understand that that doesn't mean we've got to have caution there. Secondly, another thing that's not a definite fact of revival, could be a result, could not be a result, that there are bodily effects such as tears, trembling, and groans. Just because there's a bunch of emotion and movement does not mean that revival has come. Nor does it mean that revival has not come. Now, remember Esau for a moment. He saw his birthright with tears, right? But he had no place for repentance. Tears don't necessarily mean repentance. At the same time, genuine revival does produce emotion. When you're stirred by your sin, there is emotion involved. But emotion by itself should not be the dictator of whether a revival is true or not. So we have to be cautious with that. Thirdly, that it results in a great deal of noise about religion. You know, the Asbury meeting, it's made the news, right? It's been on Fox News, been on all kinds of different news outlets. There's revival happening here. But just because there's a lot of noise about it does not mean that it is actually true revival. Bright lights attract a lot of strange bugs. And this one has attracted a lot of strange bugs. Bugs I wouldn't want to be in a service with. A lot of charismatic unbiblical people that are very out of line on other things. They may be genuinely born again, but their doctrine in certain areas are very, very off. Then there's some that I think are just outright false teachers that have been intrigued by this revival. So just because there's a big gathering does not mean it's a revival. Joel Olstein has a big gathering every Sunday. In the name of Christ, he ain't experiencing revival, friends. I promise you that. So it's not a determining factor. Fourthly, Jonathan Edwards says that great impressions are made on the imaginations of those who are influenced by it. It seems that many kinds of responses are being made at this meeting, but is that a definite evidence that revival is taking place? It's not a definite evidence. Now, responses are made all the time that are rooted in false pretense or just emotional stirring or manipulation. Responses are also made during true revival. So therefore, we can't gauge revival just because, oh, there's all these responses. Oh, that was a revival. Be cautious to dictate what is revival and what is not. Be, I, I, th- this is my aim. I don't want to give uh, the Spirit uh, false credit, if that makes sense. I don't want to attribute to the Spirit a work that's not His, but I also don't want to delineate from a work that is His. So there's caution with this on both sides. Number five is this that the example of others is a great means of bringing it about. Now, God uses examples of others to influence others towards godliness. There's, been, there's good examples leading people, and then there's bad examples leading people. 
You can't judge the whole meeting by one good example or bad example that's there. Number six, the subjects of it are guilty of great irregularities in their conduct. Now, understand that revival is not dependent on perfect people leading it or attending it. The whole point of revival is to bring people to truth and holiness, sanctifying them. But often you may see a meeting that has irregularities, but that's not a definite mark of whether it's a revival or not. You understand that the Word of God is not bound by imperfect people, even people who don't have perfect doctrine like ours. God used me for a long time, and I know I was wrong on several things. That didn't, say, that didn't stop him from still reaching people with his word. For example, here's a great example. Remember the church at Corinth? Did that church have any irregularity in it? Do we even need to go there? My goodness. Yet they were also recipients of the Spirit's work. So we can't judge a revival based on some irregularity. We've got to be cautious. Number seven that there may be many errors in judgment and even some delusions of Satan mixed up in the work. It's often when the Spirit is at work that who else is at work? Satan, right? There may be among the movement of the Spirit outward evidence that Satan is also working there. But the evidence of Satan working does not mean that the Spirit is not also working. For example, when Moses comes to Egypt and performs these miracles that God was doing by his Spirit, Was he the only one doing miracles? Nope. The satanic worshipers in Egypt were also mimicking some of those miracles. So just because Satan is at work does not mean the spirit is not also at work. So we can't just say wipe wipe everything off the map because we see something that that's obviously of Satan. God may be still working in somebody else over here that has nothing to do with that. There's always going to be some in that way. Number eight. There are some who were thought to be converted. They, should they fall away into serious error or sins? Just because someone who maybe was there or, or thought they were in the midst of this movement, a revival, and they fall away later, does not mean that the whole revival was a sham. Just because some fell away does not mean that the Spirit does not work, did not work in others. There's always going to be some that profess the Spirit worked in them who he really did not. That's what we see with false conversion and false prophets. 1 John 2, 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But they went out that it might be known that they are not of us. Number nine, and lastly, in regards to what Edward says, that, that it is promoted by ministers insisting very much on the terrors of God's law. Now, some may assume that if the law of God and the terrors of hell are being preached, that any such response must be the genuine work of the Spirit. Not so, friend. There's many people that respond to the message of hell just because they want to escape, not because they're actually repentant of sin towards God. That's not always the case. Now, preachers must preach condemnation, but sometimes sinners respond not with genuine repentance, and other times they do respond with genuine repentance. So so you understand that these things are, are good warnings, I think, and wisdom when it comes to evaluating what may be deemed as a revival or moving of the Spirit. He gives us some important notes. And it's our duty as believers to have proper caution in concluding whether a movement is of God or not. But one thing we do know about this, God always operates within the boundaries of his word. That's the foundational principle for this. God always operates within the boundaries of his word. 
This is how we gauge the Spirit's movement. Now, as far as the Asbury meeting, I've been shy to comment too detailed on that because I don't want to make too much judgment. But I will say that I think there is legitimate room for great caution as there's been many first-hand visitors that I have read articles about and watched videos about. They're giving their testimony, what they experienced, and many of them had said they have not heard a complete gospel. A lot of it is God loves you, he'll take you as you are, say the sinner's prayer. There's not much repentance. That doesn't mean others might not might be truly repenting, but understand that there's caution there. Some have said there's been homosexuals engaged in leading the worship. I've got a major issue with that. Others have said that it's very hyped up on emotion. Not much genuineness. So you have to you understand that there has to be caution. I'm not going to say it's not a move of the Spirit, because even though there may be error and irregularities there, God still may be working in some hearts and actually bringing them to himself because he doesn't fail to do that. So there's reasons for great caution. But despite those things, he, is still, he does still work. And at the very least, you know what this event has done? It's brought a lot of attention to what revival is in the name of Christ. So I praise God for that, and I praise God for those that maybe are truly being drawn to him and being converted. Lastly, number B, let number B. You, you tell them over time, it's a letter, letter B. It's 731. Wow. Hold on. We should pray. We should pray for the Spirit to truly bring revival. Friend, in one sense, understand this. This is what I want you to say about revival. Revival is not limited to big meetings or big experiences. In one sense, every time we gather of a local church, we are experiencing revival. Every time we gather, we gather for the purpose of exalting Christ, expounding the scriptures, worshiping the Lord, affecting the heart of the true Christian. The Spirit is always at work in God's people when we gather. So therefore, he's always seeking to bring revival in us individually and as a church. He revives through the ordinary means of grace in the little things that we do faithfully. But revival does not always come in the same measure. Much like rain, sometimes it's a drizzle, might be a sprinkle, might be a heavy downpour. And my prayer is that we need a heavy downpour in the local churches in our nation. We really do. We need not to be cynical about revival. Revival does happen. God's sovereign over revival. It's his work. But we ought to seek him for it. It needs to happen, especially in our American churches. Revival should be the prayer of God's people, just as the psalmist. And if you're going to pray for revival, the best thing you can do is say, Lord, start with me. Revive me in my life. And I'll close with this quote from Spurgeon. He says, O men and brethren, what would this heart feel if I could but believe that there were some of you who would go home and pray for a revival. Men whose faith is large enough and their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to exercise unceasing intercessions that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as in times of former generations. Revival is a wonderful work of God and his people that brings them to where they're supposed to be, brings them back to where they ought to be, it leads to the salvation of sinners. It exalts Christ. It 
empowers local churches, and it impacts communities. And I would pray (laughs) that God would send revival here, even in Lee Creek, that we would affect our community around us. That's my prayer, and I pray that you you would pray that with me.